uh, welcome this week, little baby boy, Levi Yang. So congratulations to them. After a brief 40 minutes in the hospital, she was there safe and sound. Mum and Bub doing great. So we're so stoked for the Yang family. Uh, we are on our second last message uh, of our Luke uh, series. So if you have your Bible, open them up to uh, Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, it's not a problem. It's going to be up on the screen. And we're going to read uh, the road on the road to Emmaus, our second last message in this fantastic series in Luke's gospel. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Verse 13, I'm going to read and I'm going to pray for our time together. This is the word of God, church. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, our company, amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying... They had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things And enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him 
and he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning as your people, we want to thank you that Jesus is alive. We want to thank you for that beautiful hope of the resurrection, that Jesus defeated death, that he is ruling, that he is reigning, and that he is present with us this morning by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come, open our eyes to hear you in the preaching of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning with a passage from a favorite book of mine by Nabil Qureshi. The book is entitled, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Nabil was a, a passionate Muslim, and his book entitles his journey to faith through his friend, David Wood. And Nabil recounts a conversation during a genetics class at university. Uh, Nabil says the following. I was considering studying the information in the genetics lecture we had just left when a thought struck me. You know, David, genetics is a major problem for the Christian faith. David looked characteristically amused. Oh, yeah? Yeah, think about it. Why do we have children? In fact, why does any species reproduce? David said nothing but waited. By now he had learned that to really interact with my thoughts, it was best to let me talk it out first. Reproduction is for survival. It's just like Osgood said. Cells are going to die, so they replicate themselves as much as they can first. The problem is obvious. Why does God need a son if he is immortal? After pausing for dramatic effect, which seemed lost on David, I continued. Jews understood this, so they never said God begot a son, and Jesus was a Jew. It must have been after Jesus that Roman culture mixed with the early church. Romans have plenty of stories of gods impregnating women, producing God-men. David asked a clarifying question. Is that what you think Christians teach? Isn't it? You say the Holy Spirit visited Mary while making her pregnant. It would only be logical for the Christian Jesus to be a demigod, since he was born of a human and a god. But let's face it, the Bible describes a fully human Jesus. That explains his hunger, his thirst, his bleeding, his ignorance, and his death. Although I was assembling my arguments on the fly, these thoughts were hardly new, nor even my own. Two decades of Islamic teaching, daily bolstered by the repetition of the Quran's words, God begets not, nor is he begotten, we're combining with a critical intellect and an ardent desire to advance the faith of my fathers. My battle against the lordship of Jesus was an organic outgrowth of everything that defined me. It was here I would make my stand, and I was not backing down without a fight. I love listening to the story of Nabil. In Nabil's story, his idea of Jesus 
was heavily influenced by his upbringing, the culture in which he grew up. He was influenced to believe that Christianity and the Bible teaches that Jesus is a demigod, part God, part man. If you engage with someone of the Islamic faith, you'll quickly realize they have a very different perspective from us on Jesus. In fact, take a walk down to Westfield in Hornsby and ask people, who is Jesus? And you're bound to get a variety of different answers as diverse as the community that we're a part of. Uh, Some people will say that Jesus was a great moral teacher, teaching wonderful truths like uh, the golden rule. Uh, Some people will teach that Jesus is an invention of the white patriarchy to propel the subjugation of women. Some people will say that Jesus was a God. Some people will say that Jesus was a prophet. Some people will say that Jesus was an influential historical figure. And the truth is, in our culture, we're okay with people having wildly divergent ideas about Jesus. A catchphrase of our culture is to say, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. The idea is that whether something is true isn't as important as whether it works for me personally and enables me to live the lifestyle that I would like to live. It's not really a logical position, though, is it, when you think about it? In reality, there are some things in life that are true and others that are false. For instance, if I told you that I'm on the Forbes billionaires list, you would quickly recognize that that is patently false. Uh, We have detailed historical records of what Jesus taught in the Bible, and certain things about Jesus are true, and certain things that people claim Jesus taught are, in fact, false. But here's the thing. It's not just people out there who can have wrong ideas about Jesus. It's us as Christians as well. In our passage today, the resurrected Jesus appears to two disciples leaving Jerusalem after the Passover festival. Uh, um, And what we see is the way in which culture has the power to blind us. Even these disciples couldn't understand what Jesus had repeatedly taught. But Jesus, in compassion, opens their eyes to understand what he'd been teaching all along. And my hope, that is, for any of us that perhaps are in a similar vein, impacted unwillingly by culture, Jesus would open our eyes to see him clearly as well. You know, if you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Gospel According to Jesus. I really have two or three points, sorry, for us this morning. The Gospel According to Culture, point number one. The Gospel According to Jesus, point number two. And point number three, which will be a shorter point, the transforming power of the gospel. But really our hope for this morning is a simple one. It's that in the lead up to Christmas, our hearts would be set aflame as we rightly see Jesus. We don't want to be seeing the Jesus of our culture. We want to be seeing Jesus as revealed to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So let's dive right in to look at the gospel according to culture this morning in point number one. If you're new to the gospel of Luke, as I've mentioned, we've come to right to the end of the gospel itself. Next week is our very last message. And we've followed Jesus from his birth all the way through to his teaching, all the way through to his crucifixion, and last week, his resurrection from the dead. Last week, these women came to anoint his body in a beautiful display of devotion, and they found the tomb was empty. 
And they had an angelic vision saying, he's risen from the dead. And they returned back to the other disciples who we learned disbelieved their testimony. Well, in our passage this morning, it's still uh, Easter Sunday. It's still Resurrection Sunday. And two disciples have left Jerusalem, likely for home, in a town called Emmaus. And we read the following in our passage in verse 13. It says the following. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Emmaus in Hebrew uh, simply means hot spring. And there's great debate about where it is. Our passage says it was about 11 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. People don't know where this place Emmaus is. It could be in a number of different locations. We also know very little about the two disciples named along the way, uh, except the name Cleopas, which is the only time it's mentioned here. Uh, Was this a husband and wife? We're not told. Was it Cleopas and Dr. Luke? We're not told. But what we do know is that as these two leave Jerusalem, they are having a passionate discussion about what has happened. The word translated in your Bible, discussing, could equally be translated debate or dispute. They are passionately disputing or discussing what has happened. And a traveler joins them. And they're unaware of the fact that this is, in fact, the risen Lord Jesus. This also happens in two other occasions in John's Gospel, in John chapter 20 and 21. And in all three of these occasions, the disciples do not initially recognize Jesus. And they're not at fault for that. The disciples are not blamed for failing to recognize him. God has, in fact, deliberately concealed his identity. The passage says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And the reason? Well, the reason is to give us insight into what they believed about Jesus' crucifixion prior to seeing him raised from the dead. Why don't you read on with me? Verse 17 says the following. And they said to him, What is this conversation? And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus inquires of the topic of their conversation, and they stop and they reveal that they are in fact devastated. They stood still looking sad. That word means gloomy or sullen. They are devastated. Notice they're not expecting Jesus to be alive. Gloomy and sullen does not mean hopeful. It means that they have thought that Jesus was in fact a failure. And they assume that this traveler is a fellow pilgrim returning from the festival from Jerusalem as well. And their answer is accordingly, incredulous. How could you have been in Jerusalem and not have known what has happened? Cleopas then gives us intimate knowledge of their mindset at this time, presumably also the mindset of many of the disciples following Jesus' crucifixion. And Cleopas' account reveals that there are in fact three areas in which these disciples had misunderstood Jesus' teaching. Firstly, 
They didn't really even understand who Jesus was. Read with me verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. According to Cleopas, Jesus was a mighty prophet, akin to Elijah or Elisha or Moses. He was a great man of God. But Jesus claimed to be so much more. Jesus claimed to be God incarnate himself. God was his father. He could forgive sins. He was the divine son of man. Secondly, Cleopas reveals to us that they didn't really understand what Jesus had come to do. Uh, Read with me verse 20 through to 21. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, is now the third day since these things have happened. You know, 2,000 years on, we forget just how crazy the crucifixion story is. This idea of Jesus suffering and dying for our sins, we miss how ludicrous it sounded to people in Jesus' day. We had hoped, they said, he was the one to redeem Israel. When we hear that word redeem, we usually think in our context as Christians of kind of like paying the price for something, of setting someone free, of sacrifice, of atonement. But yet it has another common meaning. It also means to set someone free. You see, if they were thinking in terms of sacrifice and atonement, it would suggest they had understood what had happened, but clearly they don't. They have in mind Jesus failing in the task of setting Israel free. And it's easy to understand how they got there. A thousand years earlier, God had promised David's descendant an eternal kingdom. And they'd been awaiting for this king, this anointed one by God, this Messiah, Mashiach, for a thousand years. And everyone expected this would be a kind of holy general who would come and liberate Israel from from oppression and slavery, from more than 400 years of subjugation at the hands of other nations. Think through the history of Israel up until this time. 400 years of subjugation. The Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Seleucids, then the Romans, all coming through and quashing them, and no Messiah yet. Only repeated, repeated disappointments. And so their understanding was, if Jesus was the Messiah, he would be a holy warrior king. And therefore the cross means one thing and one thing only. It means defeat. It means proof that this was no Messiah, but a failure. Yet another disappointment in history. And so they say, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem, that is to set Israel free. And we're devastated. Because clearly Jesus was not the Messiah. Thirdly, they didn't understand the empty tomb. Read on with me, verse 22 to 24. It says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Well, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
You know, the disciples had not believed the testimony of those three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joanna. In verse 11, it, it says, Luke writes, that it seemed an idle tale. Literally, it seemed like words of nonsense. They weren't eagerly expecting the resurrection from the dead. Verse 22, in our passage that we've just read, it says, Some of our women, our company, amazed us, or perhaps better translated, confused us. They found nobody, they had a vision of angels, and some of us went to look and he wasn't even there. I mean, the question that it obviously leads me to ask is, how is it these disciples missed it so badly? I mean, it's not that Jesus lacked any clarity in his teaching. He repeatedly taught that he was the God-man. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus repeatedly taught that he would die to atone for sins. Mark 10.45, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus repeatedly taught that he would rise from the dead. Just a few chapters earlier, Jesus says to his disciples, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. How is it these disciples missed it so badly? Well, the reason why these disciples could could not make sense of the cross was simply that they were blinded by their culture. Centuries of oppression had created the belief that the Messiah would liberate them immediately from oppression, from Rome. This idea of his divinity Inconceivable, blasphemous even. This idea of the crucifixion, impossible to accept. How could suffering and death be part of his mission? See, the disciples believed in the gospel according to culture. The gospel of a great military leader who would free Israel from her enemies forever. And it got me thinking, what is the gospel according to culture here in Warunga? Now, culture says you should be free to enjoy yourself, to be true to yourself, to follow your dreams, and you do what you do. You do you. To enjoy your life, whatever the cost. Live your best life now. You only live once, YOLO. Our gospel says to set yourself up for the future here. Our culture says you need security and stability here. You need to invest here to make the most of your life for the rest of your life here. And our culture says, never, never ever let someone stop you from reaching your potential. So the gospel, according to culture then, simply adds a little Jesus into the mix. Jesus is... Mission, therefore, must be to help me follow my dreams. Jesus must be, therefore, there to help me live my best life now, to feel great about me. Jesus, therefore, must want me to be set up for the future here. 
to have security here, to have stability here. Jesus must be, I guess, kind of like my life coach to help me be healthy here, to help me be wealthy here, and to help me be wise here as well. That is the gospel according to culture. And just like for these disciples, it's not obvious that we've succumbed to the gospel according to culture until things start falling apart. Until your dreams are suddenly punctured and you realize they will never happen for you. Until you experience financial ruin. Until you lose your health. Until you feel trapped in your circumstances like your school or your marriage or your workplace. And you find yourself, just like the disciples on the path to Emmaus, standing still and looking sad. Questioning. Well, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah after all. Maybe that's you this morning. And you've been questioning Jesus because something's gone wrong in your life. Can I press you a little bit this morning if that's you? Are you open to considering that your assumptions about what he is like and what he wants to do with your life are based not on his teachings, but on our culture? See, Jesus doesn't want to just leave these disciples in their troubled state. He quickly moves to help them understand the true gospel, the good news of why Jesus has come. And that brings us to our second point Not the gospel according to culture, but the gospel according to Jesus. Read with me verse 25 through to 27 of our passage. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus had a stinging rebuke for these disciples. You foolish and slow of heart disciples. Notice he doesn't criticize them for failing to realize it's him. His rebuke is for failing to believe in the words of the Bible. Similarly, that is Jesus' challenge to us as well, to believe what has been written about him. Well, what are the words of the prophets that they should have believed? Read with me again, verse 26. He says that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory. See, Jesus is speaking into the great obstacle to their faith of these disciples that they faced. That suffering was not a sign that Jesus had failed as a Messiah. But that suffering was always a necessary part of the plan. See, their history had created these cultural blinders that saw the Messiah as coming only in glory. They had missed the testimony of Scripture that said, suffering first, then glory. Jesus is saying, you guys are so slow. You've missed the clear testimony of Scripture that what you have seen happen to Jesus in Jerusalem is the fulfillment of God's plan. And so we read the following in verse 27. This is an absolutely groundbreaking in its implications. He says the following in verse 27 of our passage. He says this, listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in 
all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The book of Moses or the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, all the prophets, all of scripture, Jesus says, is ultimately about himself. Now, notice that doesn't mean that there's some secret reference to Jesus hidden in every passage. That's not what it's saying. He's saying that the the story of the Bible itself finds its fulfillment in him. In the Old Testament, every page is ultimately pointing forward to him, to Jesus. And in the New Testament, every page is ultimately looking back to him or looking forward to when he's coming again. Jesus is effectively saying if the Bible is the solar system, he is the sun at the center of it all. And wouldn't you have loved to be in a fly on the wall as Jesus preached this sermon, explaining the scripture to show how on every page it pointed to him? How it demonstrated that he must suffer, then enter into his glory? You know, we don't know what scriptures he specifically interpreted for them, but we can imagine. I imagine that he, he began with opening up uh, Genesis and taking these disciples back to the Garden of Eden, explaining how sin had made a wreck of the relationship between God and man. I imagine how he pointed out to them that the heart of the problem was not Roman imperialism, but sin and our sinfulness, our isolation from God, the purpose for which we were made. I imagine how he led them to see the serpent was, or the promise to the serpent was a serpent crusher who would come and stomp on his head and how he pointed out that the Messiah would ultimately not be concerned with any one nation but crushing the devil, the ancient enemy of God himself. I imagine he turns the pages forward to Genesis 12 and the promise to Abraham, how God promised to make him into a great nation with an even greater purpose to bless the whole world as he read from Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And how Jesus could well have explained to them how God was concerned, not just with the plight of Israel, but all the families of the whole earth and that the Messiah would come for all of us. I imagine then he turns to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and explains the promise through Nathan the prophet to David, how he will raise up for him an offspring who will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever, and how it would be impossible for any man to fulfill that promise because all men die because of sin, and how the kingdom would therefore require dealing once and for all with the curse of death that had plagued mankind since the very beginning. And though we can speculate about which passages the Lord Jesus opened to these disciples, it's hard to imagine him not pausing to read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the wonderful prophecy written seven centuries before the time of Christ. Isaiah 53 that reads as following from verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall, shall, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. At the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Imagine hearing Jesus explain these verses. Imagine these disciples seeing this ancient prophecy seemingly describe every detail of all the events that had left them so confused and saddened. Imagine it would have been like hearing these words for the very first time. That he would be crushed for our iniquities. That the Lord would lay all of our sin upon him. That there was purpose in it all. That it was the will of the Lord to crush him for us. That the righteous one took our place upon the cross that we might be counted righteous. That he would live to intercede for transgressors. Even down to the tiny detail of verse 9 that they made his grave with a rich man in his death. And all of this so that simply through faith many could be counted righteous. And we don't have to imagine these disciples' response to hearing Jesus preach. It says in verse 32 that their hearts burn within them. For this, friends, is the gospel according to Jesus. And finally, our last point, point number three, the transforming power of the gospel. Now, as we draw our time to a close, I just wanted to pause and slow us down to see how grasping the truth of who Jesus really is and what he has done is absolutely life-transforming. We see it in the lives of these disciples. By now, they were almost at Emmaus, and Jesus, it says, perhaps better gestured to indicate that he intended to go further. And in true Middle Eastern fashion, they strongly compel him to stay with them and likely return back to their home. And then sitting around the table, he gives thanks and breaks bread and distributes it among them. And their eyes are open 
And then immediately he vanishes from their sight. And so we read in verse 32, it says the following. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They quickly finished their dinner and they returned to Jerusalem in the middle of the night. And they have this joy about them. They have to let the rest of the disciples know what has happened to them on the road. That Jesus has been raised from the dead. I can imagine that the words that Jesus had said so many times about his death and his resurrection were in their minds. I imagine them thinking, how did we miss it all these times? That there was a purpose to his death. That it was in fulfillment of the scriptures. And they were transformed from gloomy to joyful. From fearful to courageous. From hopeless to hope-filled. From ashamed and confused to publicly declaring, he is the Christ and he is risen. They were radically transformed because they had seen Christ and finally understood what he'd been teaching all along. They'd come to die in their place. It's also a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to transform people's lives. You know, friends, if you're new and visiting us, we are a gospel-centered church and we never want to move on from this message because it is the main message of the Christian faith. We believe there's power in the message of Christ come for sinners. It is the blazing center of our Christian faith. There is no deeper truth. There are no more radical insights, only deeper into this one truth. As Tim Keller has famously said, the cross and the gospel is not the ABC of Christianity. It is the A to Z. It is the beginning and the end of our faith. So as we close, I want to briefly pause and reflect upon whether we've got the message right, whether we're seeing Jesus clearly. First of all, if you're here and joining us today and and you're not following Jesus, I just want to warmly welcome you this morning. We are a, a community that loves all people coming to join us every week, wherever you are on your journey. The question I want to ask you is, is this, is it possible that the Jesus you see isn't Jesus at all. That like the disciples were despondent because they thought the Messiah couldn't die. Maybe similarly, you sit and think about the message of Jesus and think to yourself, well, I don't need a new therapist. I don't need a new life coach. My life is pretty good as it is. I feel happy about my, my life. My job is fine. And so it's good for others, but it's probably not for me. Well, that whole frame of reference assumes that this is who Jesus claimed to be. That Jesus claimed to be a life coach or a therapist or someone to help you in your life. And yet that's not who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the savior of the world. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be your maker. And so how we feel about him is actually irrelevant. The question is, was he right? Is it true? And if that's you, I just want to invite you to take some time to explore the claims of Jesus with a friend. We have uh, these little books that go through John's gospel, one-to-one, the word one-to-one, just a way to encounter Christ 
in and through a biography of his life. We'd love to put that in your hands. To become a Christian simply means to repent and believe. That is, to say you've been wrong about living for yourself and to trust in Jesus as the Savior of the world. But secondly, for most of us here, we're a church, so most of us are following Jesus. There are so many ways in which our vision of Jesus can be clouded. And it can leave us despondent and distracted despite the reality that Jesus is alive. You know, maybe for you, it's clouded by suffering. Maybe mental illness, you're really struggling with your mental health. Maybe physical illness or relationship difficulties. Maybe it's suffering that's clouding it for you. Maybe it's worldliness. Maybe you've been pulled in by a career and the here and now or holidays or clothing or property. Maybe it's sin, persistent failure in sexual purity or honesty or anger or spending time in the Word. You know, the sense I had for us this morning is, in particular, I felt that God was putting on my heart those that are, that are here this morning and actually your struggle is, it's just one of apathy. You've lost that sense of passionate desire for Christ. You know, as I was thinking about those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, I don't think those two had much desire for Jesus when they were on that road. I think if you asked them to sign up to serve in church, I don't, I don't think they would have been particularly keen in that moment. And the question I've been thinking about this week is, what caused these two disciples' heart to burn within them? Well, I think it's simply the truth that they understood for the very first time God's purpose in the cross and they saw that Jesus is alive. You know, if your heart isn't burning with love for Jesus this morning, I want you to see the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead changes everything. It changes the way you think about singleness and loneliness If Jesus is alive, he is with you. He is present this morning in this community. If you're struggling with bullying at school or in the workplace, well, he's present with you, in you, and for you in your workplace. So as for Jesus, so too for us. Suffering, then glory, but with us in the midst of it all. You are not alone. If you're struggling with illness, that has no end in sight. You will be raised with him in glory one day and he's with you in between. If you're discouraged about Jesus at work in your marriage or in your life or in your family or in your friends or in you, Jesus is alive and he will call the full number of his disciples and he will finish his work in you. If you're here in this holiday season overwhelmed by the busyness of Christmas Well, Jesus is alive and therefore the many little things of our lives pale in comparison to the truth that he is risen and he is there with you in between. Friends, Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is reigning. Would we see that all the more clearly? Can you join with me as we pray to close? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of being your servants, of knowing you, of loving you, of being adopted into your family.
Lord Jesus, for any of us that have been struggling on the road between your coming and your second.